Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, I don't know, Tyler. It's Christmas time, you know. It's December. We're getting ready for the holidays. and uh, Indeed. You know, we always want to have some surprising package under the tree. And uh, I'm thinking this show we got today, you know, is a little bit of a package, a little bit of a present to the coastal professionals out there because that's right. We're going to be talking to one of the great coastal professionals and leading thinkers on uh, on climate driven coastal flooding and hazards uh, from the United States Geological Survey, you know, one of the cool agencies in the federal government. That's right. When you're looking at this package, ladies and gentlemen, it is wrapped in beautiful green and white uh, uh, wrapper, and uh, it's sitting there proudly under the tree, ready for us to to peek inside and open it up. We've got a great guest today to talk about how the USGS, the good old USGS, is working along the American shoreline to help us understand our coastal risks due to climate change. And also, Peter, as we've discussed for a long time, the coast is just a fascinating geological space. Tons, tons of info, very much in flux. And, you know, I'm, you know, Tyler, I'm a huge fan of NOAA. I love the, the, the scientific uh, horsepower of that agency, the integrity of the work that they do all across the uh, coastal and marine research space and, 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 a, and a close competitor uh, for top science agency in the federal government is the USGS. Uh, these are some smart cats who look at the geology and the long term and the big picture, and they do a lot of damn good work. So I'm, I'm kind of kind of jazzed to have a USGS guy on. Well, let's talk a little bit about our guest today. Well, joining us today on the American Shoreline podcast is Dr. Patrick Bernard. He is a research geologist and a specialist in uh, coastal hazards and flooding, climate-driven coastal hazards specifically. He is affiliated with the uh, Pacific Coastal and Marine Sciences Center, uh, one of the research institutes of USGS in Santa Cruz, California, Tyler, uh, out in your neck of the woods. And, uh, you know, a, a, a town many people would say is one of the best coastal towns in America, but that can be argued. Uh, Patrick is also affiliated with the Coastal and Marine Hazards and Resources Program. You got to have a good name at a federal agency and uh, is helped develop some really interesting tools to evaluate and assess uh, coastal hazard risks from climate tires. So it's a cool show. I agree, Peter. I can't wait to get into it. But let's first have a word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest Questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest 
updates from around the American shoreline, like what you're hearing, and want to support the network, sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, uh, Dr. Bernard, thank you very much from here on out, Patrick, if you don't mind. Yeah, thanks for having me, Peter. Thanks, Tyler. Well, appreciate you joining us on the American Shoreline Podcast to talk about uh, marine hazards and flooding and all the bad stuff that can happen from climate change and uh, how you guys get a handle on that at the USGS. It's a privilege to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, if you wouldn't mind, uh, Patrick, would you introduce us to the, uh, the USGS Pacific Coastal and Marine Sciences Center, the institution that you're affiliated with? T- tell our listeners about, about this group. Sure. There's about 100 of us out there in um, Santa Cruz, and we uh, have a range of specialties from sort of more classic marine geology to geohazards like tsunami risk um, to coastal hazards. And that's my specialty. And we uh, have two other centers across the country. One's in St. Pete, Florida. The other one's in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And so the three of us make up the Coastal Marine Hazards and Resources Program, um, which is run um, centrally out of Reston, where USGS headquarters is. But then we have these three um, offices across the country to cover various geographies um, for the United States. Well, I would just remind our listeners that this is, uh, Patrick, you are the second you are number two, the second uh, USGS professional we've had on this very show. Uh, you were preceded by a colleague of yours, Dr. Matthew Patrick. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this was a fun show that we did, Peter, I'm guessing about a year ago. Uh, and this was all about the Hawaiian uh, volcanoes and volcanism, uh, which we we believe here uh, on the American Shoreline podcast that that is absolutely coastal subject matter because after all, these volcanoes erupted from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, so we did a great show, The Amazing uh, Volcanoes of Hawaii. Uh, check that one out. Uh, but, uh, Patrick, let's talk a little bit about uh, USGS on the coast. What is, what, what is the reason for USGS? What, you know, maybe, maybe back up a little bit and tell us about USGS more broadly, but what is USGS's interest in uh, coastal space? Sure. Well, you know, we specialize in earth surface processes and, you know, the coast is where the ocean meets the land and, and that dynamic interface is, is within our purview. And so it's, you might say it's in our wheelhouse to understand this very dynamic zone. Um, it's, it's part of the USGS and, you know, more broadly across the USGS, you know, we deal with all natural hazards um, and a range of other topics as well, but within the natural hazards mission area, you know, we we have groups that look at volcanoes and landslides and tsunamis and earthquakes, of course, which is probably the the way the USGS is both both um, best well known, and then um, also coastal hazards. Um, so that's uh, where we come into the, the picture. So we're just about there's about 400 of us in the program, um, which is just about five percent of the total USGS. Um, you know, there's about 7,500 or so doing all these other topics, you know, water resources and other hazards and ecosystems. And then there's our, our relatively smaller group dealing with, uh, with uh, marine geology and coastal hazards. Patrick, uh, as a research geologist and someone who is uh, responsible for the ass- assessment, essentially, 
of the risks associated with climate change. Uh, introduce our audience, uh, if you would, to the types of risks that you are, you and your colleagues are studying at the Pacific Coastal and Marine Sciences Center. Yeah, so we have a, I lead our Coastal Climate Impacts Project, um, which is in its third iteration now. So we're about in the 11th year. And so we focus on climate-driven coastal hazards. Um, so, so sea level rise and storm-driven hazards along the coast. And so we look at coastal erosion, um, cliff retreat, coastal flooding, groundwater hazards, um, in some cases, vertical land motion and how that affects um, coastal hazards. And then the translation of that information into, into socioeconomic relevance, societal relevance, such as you know, how many dollars and lives are impacted by these hazards moving forward. So in order to do that, you know, we, we spend a lot of time looking at, at modern day processes, doing hindcast to assess how well models work. And once we're comfortable with that fundamental science um, and model development, then we can apply um, future scenarios to look at these different hazards um, across the United States. And we've mostly been focusing on the West Coast of late. Um, we have work up in Alaska and the Pacific Islands, but we're also expanding um, some of this work in particular to the Southeast um, for the, the, the certain applied research products that we're developing here in Santa Cruz. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that overview. Uh, there's a couple things I wanted to go a little bit deeper into. And uh, this, you had mentioned um, uh, sort of the, the systematic uh, assessment of these risks. Uh, I understand the USGS has developed a model uh, referred to as COSMOS, the Coastal Storm Monitoring System. Uh, I, I'd like to, I think for the coastal professionals out there, uh, the coastal engineers, uh, the coastal geologists that work in the private sector and the local government people uh, who give a damn about this stuff and are affected by these risks, uh, Talk to us about what Cosmos is and why it's an important tool. Yeah, sure. Um, about 15 years ago, you know, when uh, the fourth assessment for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out, and then there are also some other important papers that similarly really put sea level rise on the map as a hazard, um, especially in California, took notice and they were beginning to develop policy related to sea level rise. And I was also related in a, in a project at the time that had some funds to build out some models for looking at coastal hazards. And so we did that um, for a particular uh, storm scenario that was being developed by the state um, or for statewide to look at a range of hazards. But this looked like a good opportunity to be able to support the state in their climate planning. And so uh, that's basically how Cosmos was born, the Coastal Storm Modeling System. It was a partnership uh, between our group and Deltaris in the Netherlands. So we put our heads together and thought about, you know, what we need to develop to be able to produce sea level rise and, and storm-driven hazards in, a, in an assessment for the state of California. Um, you know, what models, what personnel, what expertise do we need to integrate to bring together the best science? And you know, in a nutshell, that's what the USGS does is, you know, bring the best science together from across the world, wherever it might be, um, put it together in a, in a nice package and then develop some applied research products so we can support um, public decision making. And so it, it began with just a few scenarios um, in Southern California. And now it's evolved and it's just myself and a, and a partner at Deltaris. 
And now there's about 50 people working on various aspects of, of Cosmos. And it's almost as much of a, of a brand or a concept than it is a specific set of tools because some of the tools vary depending on the location it's being applied based on whatever science is needed. But now we have applications across California. It's being applied in the Northwest, in Alaska, Pacific Islands, and a, a version is about to be released with the associated products for the Southeast United States as well. So it's been a, it's been developed for, you know, almost 15 years now, but with a lot of R&D in particular the last 10 years, you know, there's about 70 or so journal publications back in it. Um, but more importantly, it's been developed in lockstep with a lot of policymakers, coastal managers to understand what people actually need. Um, uh, what, what, you know, what's the format? Uh, how do these things look? How do people understand? Well, they understand how to use the information. And so it's really benefited from a lot of scientific engagement, stakeholder outreach, um, the front, middle, and the back end of every geographic region that we've been building out this model in to make sure we get it right. You know, I think for years, um, you know, USGS has really relied on sort of fundamental science, which is absolutely crucial in, in journal publications, but more and more momentum is shifting to more of a hybrid approach where you absolutely have to have those peer-reviewed papers to back up your science, but you have to also put a lot of effort and resources into the products themselves so people actually use them. You know, if we're not producing things that people are actually using to make decisions at the end of the day, then we're not fulfilling our mission uh, to the American people as a taxpayer-funded agency. So help me understand here, Patrick. So Cosmos, the Coastal Storm Modeling System, uh, is a system. It's not just a model. It's a modeling system. So how would that I imagine that that would turn into tools, which is, I think, the term that you use. But could you kind of walk us through what the modeling system is and what it entails? Sure. Um, you know, we wanted to to bring in the best uh, science, like I mentioned, from across the world. And, and yeah, that really starts in, this, in, in a forward-looking sense also. We wanted to make sure that we're looking at the future evolution of the climate which are you know, based on global climate models. Um, and so we turned to you know, the, suite of the suite of climate models that have been developed for the various IPCC um, reports. Um, you know, the first, the least more recently was the CMIP-5 suite of models, and now it's a CMIP-6 suite of models, which is basically a, the outputs of which are a set for, in our case, a set of wind and pressure fields at the global and regional scale that we can we can use um, to look at and then feed into um, wave models. So we can look at the future um, wave climate, uh, the projected future wave climate um, out to 2050 and 2100. So we're seeing how storm tracks are evolving. Um, it's not a static, you know. It's not a static um, climate that we're dealing with. Obviously, um, not just sea level rise, but storm conditions will change as well. So we turned to the GCMs for that component of Cosmos. We wanted to bring in, you know, the, what future waves would look like, and then at that point, then you're trying to downscale to the finest resolution possible on the coast, so you have um, relevant sort of policy scale, management scale results on the back end. So you want to start with sort of the global projections, which, you know, come in at 
about 100 kilometer scale resolution. So the wind and pressure fields and, and then you want to get down to the, the really fine scale on the ground with your hazards projections, talking about, you know, basically like parcel level scale um, resolution. And so that involves a lot of downscaling. So at, at the larger scale, we, you know, basically develop the wave models. And then once we get to the, to the continental shelf, then we're going to bring in the tides and the storm surge and, and then continue to downscale with hydrodynamic models and wave models to the surf zone. And then we need to transform the waves across the surf zone and then ultimately model how um, the water moves across the land. And then, so that's kind of the main sort of the main frame of the flooding. But then the oceanographic conditions also drive uh, cliff retreat models, uh, which are run um, um, separately, and then also coastal erosion models. So the beaches themselves, how they're evolving. Uh, the sea level rise projections also initiate a groundwater um, response model. Um, so there's a lot of little the bells and whistles here, and we've added quite a few over the years. So at the end of the day, we have a consistent set of scenarios. So the same sea level rise boundary conditions, which we go from zero to three meters. So you can choose any one of um, eight different sea level rise projections. Um, and then a, a series of storm scenarios from your average uh, daily condition up to a 100-year return. So in the end, we have 28 scenarios, and then those all drive these various modules. So then you have um, all these hazards projections at the coast itself. Well, well done, Patrick. It sounds like it covers an incredible scope of issues and circumstances. Uh, so to you and the colleagues at USGS who have built this, uh, this model thing tool and this assessment methodology, great work. Um, what, why does it matter? I mean, science is great. Understanding is really important. You have to be able to sort of see down the road a little bit, see what these risks are going to be and how they're going to evolve. But do, do you get it out in the public and, and how do you make this actionable? How do you make this part of the decision-making process for local communities and coastal citizens, uh, you know, that, what do you do with it? Yes, great question. And that was really like sort of integral to what we were doing is to make sure that the information could be used. Um, within the federal government, there's a big push now to make in all our data available, um, but that is really an extremely low bar. We can put anything out there, but then the question is, are people even aware of it um, to make it, um, and then to make it actionable. Um, so is it actually accessible? So I'll think of those as the four A's, right? Um, so available, access, you know, aware, accessible, and actionable. If we're not, if they're not making them actionable, then we're not, you know, really doing our duty. So we spent a lot of effort, uh, you know, working with stakeholders and a lot of the modules I talked about, the things we added like groundwater, like cliff retreat were, you know, agencies saying, hey, we don't have any information on what cliffs are doing. We don't, we see that our pump stations are, um, are rusting because ground, the water table is rising and we're having saltwater intrusion. Like, but we don't know how that's going to change in the future. So a lot of the science was really driven by stakeholder needs. And, you know, at one point, um, and still today, I mean, we're in about a hundred rooms a year, I would say between myself and my team to, to listen and get a better understanding of what's needed, what's around the corner, 
what kind of information, how can we customize the information so people can use it and just feed right into their planning um, process. You know, initially back in, in 2007, um, you know, we saw this policy coming down the line, you know, consider sea level rise, consider sea level rise, but there was really no assessment for what that even means. You know, what are people actually being asked to respond to if they don't have a consistent assessment of the risks that sea level rise and storms pose? Now, NOAA came out with the NOAA Sea Level Rise Viewer, which is a really nice tool for looking at the daily impacts of sea level rise, but didn't consider storms or the dynamic response of the coast. And that's especially where USGS comes in. We're really talking about geology there. So we wanted to be able to provide sort of that full suite of information so people can make decisions. You know, that's uh, that's the question I was going to ask you. And I, I do recognize uh, you guys contend with uh, coastal habitats and ecosystems, with coastal change, a shoreline retreat, you mentioned bluff retreat. Um, but there are a lot of tools out there and a lot of agencies involved in sea level rise uh, risk analysis. I'm coming to mind in the private sector, the first, well, uh, nonprofit organization, First Street Foundation is doing extensive work on on flood risks now down to the parcel level. Of course, you mentioned NOAA, uh, the sea level rise uh, tool that they've developed uh, in their latest sea level rise report and analysis. The Corps of Engineers does a lot of stuff with this, and so does FEMA. What is it about what you're doing that makes it important and different? What is USGS's role in this very complicated and multi-tiered world of, of uh, coastal storm risk and climate risk? Yeah, it is complicated for sure. And, you know, we're really known as, as sort of a hub for science integration. And, you know, we have obviously that expertise in geology. So, you know, nobody is doing coastal response, coastal change, um, you know, how are cliffs and beaches responding, how are ecosystems impacted, that's, that's really in our wheelhouse. And so we bring that sort of unique integration and, and those other tools to the table in terms of understanding how the beaches themselves are going to respond. Um, and then also as a federal agency, you know, we have, you know, basically the, you know, the mission to deliver this consistently across the country, regardless of you know, county resources, city resources, you know, we, we, we have the ability to deliver all these different products across the country. Um, and so everyone is, is supported and can be engaged in decision-making regardless of the financial resources of the community. So we can, de- we can deliver these things consistently and um, across the entire country and then provide, you know, basically, especially the underserved communities that don't necessarily have the resources to fund um, the private sector to develop some of these tools for them, like some counties do. Like, for example, New York comes to mind as one that um, probably has slightly deeper pockets than others that can can support this kind of work in, in their in their region. But a lot of communities don't. And so, what you, you what we had when we started, what, and we saw this in California, was you'd have a handful of communities with the resources to build out something like this, um, um, but the community next door would have nothing, um, or they would hire a different uh, consultant to do uh, something slightly different. And then when you go to the state for permitting and to see it, you know, if you're meeting the regulatory requirements, it was really hard for the state to deal with that. And so we saw an opportunity there. We could provide um, this consistent authoritative guidance for the entire state of California, for example. And then the consultants could spend most of their resources and time really looking at the application of this information into developing local hazard plans, 
climate adaptation plans. And that's where a lot of this has really, I think, moved the needle. And it's been a really nicer relationship than we've built with a lot of, you know, the state agencies, but also the private sector and how we can sort of, you know, um, you know, symbiotic, uh, yeah, we can basically sync up everything that we do um, and everyone wins in the end. Symbiotic was the word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, it is a good word and it's a word I like to hear when we're talking about our federal agency friends. Uh, the idea that they can be working together and have some uh, symbiotic ecosystem action going on over there is uh, definitely something we want to hear as, as taxpayers. Uh, but listen, Patrick, uh, we're talking about uh, climate change, sure. We're talking about uh, changes that perhaps we could even see in, if not our lifetimes, in a couple lifetimes. But you're a geologist, man. I mean, when you became interested in geology, I mean, when I think of geology, I just think of time scales that are beyond the human life. And uh, what you're talking about with these tools and making them actionable has so much to do with with time scales that are comprehensible to people. And I, I could you talk a little bit about? I mean, this is the USGS culturally. Uh, you know, is this the kind? Is this some new kind of geology that we're moving into, where we're dealing with short changes on you know human perceptible levels? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, geology covers such a vast range of, of topics. It's, you know, all about, you know, Earth's processes. And so that's everything from and, and extra, you know, and a planet and planetary uh, geology as well. So, I mean, we look at everything from, uh, you know, the deep ocean to, you know, the highest mountains in the world. And and so and for me, you know, you know, my background, I did a lot of work in, in Asia and looking at uh, mountain hazards, worked in in Nepal and India and Tibet when I was a grad student and was really fascinated by the hazard aspect of geology and especially those extremely dynamic environments, whether they be, you know, um, these, these glaciated environments where there's lots of landslides and flooding risk um, or the coastal interface, which is, you know, arguably the most dynamic sort of interface in the, in the world. It We get to see changes on a daily basis, on an hourly basis with the tides. And that's what's really exciting to me is to be in this environment where you can see things happening. You know, we can, we can build, we've built monitoring programs that have been going on now for about 20 years or so. We can track these changes and see how just incredibly dynamic that those beaches and dune systems are, and we can literally see them changing. And so it's really nice to be uh, in this very applied area where we can see these things happening. Um, we can, basically tune models and build models based on what we've observed in the last 20 years. And they have a lot of relevance for, you know, projections over the, over the coming decades. Uh, Patrick, we've been able to thank you for this programmatic overview of all of the work that you're doing with your colleagues at USGS uh, on this risk assessment, the models, the assessment tools. It's great to hear that local government officials and planning directors and communities that are facing risks and decisions can access the resources of USGS, this level of expertise. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I want to talk in this next part of the discussion we're having. Let's talk about the risks that you've been working on this now for more than 10 years, I think more than 15, uh, focusing on the West Coast. And I think if we could, let's contain the discussion to the West Coast of the United States. But what have you learned? What concerns you 
uh, about climate-driven risks on the West Coast of the United States. What comes to mind? What do you tell your friends when you go home and have a beer and say, hey, you, ca you can't believe this? What have you learned? What's, what's interesting? Yeah, I think what's interesting is that there's been this assumption because, you know, we're on an active margin coast. It's, it's relatively high relief. It's not, it doesn't look like the East Coast and the Gulf Coast, which are these passive margin settings with very low coastal slopes and very little, um, you know, elevation close to the coast. And, and therefore, the West Coast is totally fine. But, you know, it turns out that a huge number of people and the millions and millions live essentially in on reclaimed estuaries. So very low line areas in San Francisco Bay, for example, where there's about 8 million people. Um, all these smaller communities across Southern California, you know, from San Diego, you know, all the way up to Santa Barbara um, are built in on basically reclaimed estuaries. And so they're extremely low line. And so when we built Cosmos out across California, you know, what we found is that by the end of century, um, there's about 600,000 people and $200 billion of property at risk across the state. Um, which is, you know, the, effectively the fifth largest economy in the world. And so it's a really big number. You know, it's about that number is about six to seven percent of the state's GDP, uh, depending, you know, what numbers you look at. So it's very, very it's very significant, even, you know, for a, a coast which supposedly is fairly high relief. And it is for the most part. But a lot of people, like I said, live right at sea level. And so these these risks are apparent even here. Um, and right around 2050 is where we really start to see those sea level rise curves accelerate. And that's when things change quite dramatically. So that's the first thing I would, I would say. Um, we we're kind of surprised by the, the high number of the flooding. And then, you know, from our coastal change models, what we found is that because so much of the coast is developed, especially in Southern California, um, I think close to 50% of the coast is protected by some sort of structure, that basically we start to run out of sand when, toward the end of the century. These We're getting these beaches are going to be squeezed by rising sea level and eroding coast and, and no ability for the coast to transgress inland um, because development's in the way. So we found that the models project we'll lose roughly half, about 50% of the beaches by the end of the century in Southern California, which are iconic to Southern California life and, and you know, sort of known throughout the world. So that was rather striking, um, that number of potentially losing half the beaches if we do nothing to, to manage those beaches further. And the third one, which is just more recent, when we were asked to look at the groundwater hazards across the state, and we developed an approach to do so um, with our partner at University of Arkansas, uh, Professor Kevin Beefus. Um, we, it was sort of an unknown hazard. It hasn't been talked about a lot. Um, the basic concept is that, you know, the water table is very shallow along the coast because it's controlled um, by sea level near the coast. And so as sea level rises, that water table will rise as well. In some communities, it'll essentially um, intercept the surface and you're going to turn some communities into swamps. Other places, it'll just get shallower and shallower and it's going to, you know, have, you know, wreak havoc on septic systems and you know, pump stations and other buried infrastructure, you know, foundations, et cetera. What we found by looking at the groundwater hazards across California is that um, that potential hazard is about six to eight times greater than the overland flooding. So that's, and which is not to say that's the impact, but at least as a hazard that needs to be considered, it's, it's 
considerably higher than overland flooding. So something that has to be thought about. And as we manage our coasts and as we adapt to climate change impacts, we have to think of solutions that don't just deal with the overland flood and the erosion, but also the fact that the water is going to be coming up from underneath. I know, I know, Peter. It's like, it's pretty dark. And Patrick, I got to say, no, it doesn't sound good at all. And I got to say, you know, I I don't know if it's in, I've got to ask, do you get to work at all on the solution side of things? Or are you really modeling death? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it can be a little depressing. There's definitely a lot more work now about thinking about practical solutions. You know, we're, we don't, set regulations, we don't dictate policy, but we can provide scenarios that look at, okay, well, what if we did, you know, X, you know, what'll happen? And so there's more and more work now focused on, you know, okay, what if we continue to nourish beaches? You know, how will the coast respond? Um, What if we um, restore tidal marshes? How will that reduce flood impacts? Um, What if we put in more pumps in, you know, a place like Miami, for example? How, you know, what's it going to take to be able to mitigate um, these impacts in the future. And so we, yeah, we don't like to be the deliverer of, of this bad news. It's, you know, it's a bit dystopian when we think that this is what it might look like if we do nothing. And I think what we're trying to do is, okay, let's at least get an assessment of where we are now and then let's do something. Um, we have the science, we will support the agencies to make decisions. That's the end of the day, what we're supposed to do is give you know, provide the scientific tools and applied products so people can make smart decisions. You know, if we're going to, if we're going to build a power station, you know, maybe we can just build it, you know, a kilometer back from the coast instead of right on the coast, for example. If we're going to build a new, you know, uh, you know, water treatment system, let's, you know, maybe we don't want to put it in this area. Maybe we can put it in another area. Let's just make some smart decisions so we're not hamstringing ourselves in the future and we can try to, you know, kind of roll with the punches and do our best to, um, you know, support both the public infrastructure, but also the communities themselves. So people have the information to make decisions, you know, personal, smart decisions personally, but also um, the governments can make decisions to help keep people out of harm's way as best they can. All right. Now, now we're talking, you know, we're getting down to the brass tacks now about how this information we hope, you hope, USGS hopes, uh informs public decision-making, particularly on large-scale things, public-private sector development and infrastructure investments, that kind of thing. Um, But it's all about communicating the information, and it's all about uh, getting people to understand it and to to respond to the the understanding that they gain. in your experience at USGS, do you occasionally have the opportunity to speak to town officials or a city council or a county commissioner meeting uh, or even in the private sector, investors or developers? Uh, do you have those kinds of interactions occasionally? Yeah, I've uh, pretty much been exposed to it all from uh, you know your private citizen getting up at a, a city council meeting and telling you why you're, what you're doing is... <laughs> needs work and why aren't the government helping us to, uh, you know, congressional briefings and members of the cabinet. So kind of all the way from the bottom to the top, so to speak. Um, And really we learn as much from, from those citizens on the ground as from anyone. I mean, they've got the local knowledge, they have the anecdotal information. Um, They can, you know, it's just so critical. I think this engagement piece that, that we're out in the landscape 
like I said before, during and after these efforts to understand, you know, how we're doing, what people need to make decisions, to really listen to folks. And I mean, it's it's really those citizens on the ground, like I said, that have this incredible wealth of information that we can use to to make the science better and better and need those different perspectives. We have to get into those communities that are super vulnerable, which are the hardest ones to get into because there's lack of resources even to attend meetings. But that extra effort is really critical if we're going to deliver, you know, what we're supposed to deliver as, you know, as taxpayer funded agency for, you know, applied science products. Well, absolutely. 100% true. Uh, this is the investment that the American people make and uh, the, the services and the expertise that is made available to communities along the coast of the United States. Uh, that's the job fundamentally, because it matters if it's if it's in the if it's in the decision making process, it matters. If it's simply uh, in in an academic uh, journal, it's not very important. Although it's scientifically significant, it's all about the connection to people in the decision making process. Um, over the years, this is a question Tyler likes to ask. Uh, Tyler, this is you know over the years of doing this, Patrick, have you seen a change in the receptiveness of people? to the information and the understanding that you're providing. Um, are people more willing today to accept the risks that you are outlining to them? That's a great question. It definitely varies, I would say. I've spent a lot of time in California, which is sort of very receptive uh, to the climate work and and perhaps among the least skeptical, although I get, we, I'm getting asked lots of good questions and difficult questions for how to deal with it. You know, I definitely think that, um, you know, the more we repeat the same message over and over, it's really critical. Um, whenever we're given a talk, uh, it's important to just talk about the fundamental science that underpins all the work that we do. You know, the wealth of observations that, that, that support, you know, climate change and research and why we're doing these things. And you remind people that, you know, we have 6,000 weather stations across the world. That's how we know the, temp- the, temp- the temperature trends, you know just talk about how anomalous this behavior of the climate is now. It's, uh, you know, the rate of sea level rise, the rate of temperature changes. I mean, there's a, a wealth of information that is just indisputable. And I think the denial, the denier community has really prospered by repeating some of the same messages over and over. And it's, you know, definitely moved the needle and it's, it can be frustrating when, you know, people uh, are not receptive to what we view as as unbiased science, which is, you know, what the USGS is probably most well known for is, you know, because we don't, you know, unlike other agencies, we don't have regulatory authority, we don't set policy. And so we're just delivering the science and we can stay out of the way of that, which is good. However, it definitely behooves, you know, scientists in any agency to repeat some of these same messages over and over just about how un- indisputable, you know, climate the climate change is that's going on right now um, and that it's, you know, it's largely, if not completely driven, um, you know, by human modifications to the system. And so we've definitely seen, I think, uh, more acceptance of, of what's going on. And we've been out in places uh, which are on the, the knife edge of climate impacts like Ocracoke, for example, I was out there last fall. On the outer banks of uh, North Carolina. Correct. Yeah, I was really interested to be at a community that has been dealing with this, these sorts of impacts for, for literally for several centuries in, in terms of living on the edge, in terms of hazards and, 
you know, that island has now flooded, I believe it's uh, uh, nine times in the last 20 years. And they've got eighth and ninth generation folks living out there since, you know, basically um, late 1700s and talking to them. I mean, even if they don't embrace the, the drivers of climate change, um, they know things are changing and they're having to deal with it. And it really kind of shed light on how emotional an issue is, uh, such as climate change. And if, if you're being asked to consider, you know, displacing your culture or your, your upbringing or what you know so well, it, I think it really helped us think more critically about how to address a range of communities and to think about where people are coming from, what their perspectives are, um, what they're willing to do and not do. And ultimately all we can do is, is deliver the information in a way that they can make their own decisions. But um, it's a really difficult challenge, I think, to especially get everyone to agree on, you know, the drivers, but the people that live on the coast, no matter what they think, they are seeing what's happening. They, uh, I think many have embraced what's happening. I don't think there's any doubt, particularly uh, on the American shoreline, uh, climate change and the changes that have been uh, facing us all. Increased storms, uh, blue sky flooding events. Uh, and then, of course, we're looking at this specter of sea level rise. I think <clears throat> if you could do a poll, Peter, I would love to do this someday. We need a, we need a lot of money. But we would, I would love to do a, an American shoreline poll on this question because I, you know, it is true out in California. Certainly, uh, there are parts of the American shoreline that are culturally more receptive to climate change. But Patrick, I agree with you. In my travels around and in speaking with people of all political stripes and backgrounds, uh, the changes that are occurring are obvious. And that's, again, why I think it's so interesting from a geological perspective. I mean, most people, when they observe coastal change or are thinking about these things, they're not thinking about them geologically. They're thinking about them maybe in terms of the impact of their lives, the fact that the road is flooded, the fact that uh, their insurance might be going up. <clears throat> these are the social systems that most of us interact with. And Patrick, you get to think about the actual terra firma underneath us, the, the substance of it that is actually changing and I think that it's uh, it's very interesting and very important for us to understand and know. Uh, what would you say from a public outreach and engagement uh, per perspective would be the we'll call it the ABCs, the 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 top the top things that you would want if you could snap your fingers and have uh, America's coastal citizens understand three things about coastal geology? What would they be? That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, the coast is, is extremely dynamic. It changes all the time. It's affected by both climate variability and climate change. So certainly there are cycles um, that are shorter, talking about, you know, like El Nino cycles, for example, that, you know, affect the coast. And a lot of people recall those. And of course, we have, you know, episodic hurricanes hitting the Gulf and, and the Southeast coast and also on Pacific Islands and stuff that, that people are aware of. And and really what we're, you know, as we move forward, you know, we're built on this just razor edge. We've built up our infrastructure in this very unfortunate time right along the coast where um, sea level is relatively flat for a while um, until, you know, climate change really took over. Now it's accelerating. And so 
you know, we're starting to see these exceptionally high rates of sea level rise, which we haven't, you know, experienced for, you know, thousands and thousands of years and most of it human driven. And what we're seeing, you know, we're going to see now in the coming decades is a dramatic shift in the risk regime. You know, today's, you know, once in a once in a lifetime event is going to happen effectively every year um, by the middle of the century and every day by the end of the century. That's sort of generally how the, the risk regime is going to shift in terms of what we experience today versus tomorrow with just, you know, moderate to sort of high rates of sea level rise. So it's going to change. You know, we're already seeing these impacts today, um, like you guys have alluded to, you know, with some of these events that are just supercharged by climate, you know, like Harvey, like Florence, for example, where we just had, you know, upwards of 40 to 50 inches of rain during a hurricane, which is, you know, just remarkable, um, rapid amplification of storms, you know, so we're seeing these impacts right now. Um, there's just going to be more of that in the future and it's going to be riding on a higher base level. Um, so that the, the community is going to be more impacted if we, if we choose to ignore, um, what's going on. So the, you know, it sounds a little, uh, like Gary Gregg's Tyler <laughs> out there, another Santa Cruz guy, Dr. Gary Griggs, if you've heard Santa Cruz. That's right. Uh, uh, who says that, that on the California sea level rise problem, it is going to happen. It's going to happen in a matter of decades. And there's essentially nothing that we can do to prevent that from occurring. Uh, the question is how we're going to adapt to it. Uh, Patrick, you're, you're a scientist. You're a, you're a data rationalist guy. That's the, that's the hallmark of what it means to be, to be uh, a scientist. Uh, are, uh, let me ask you from a from a human perspective, as a person who is you know up to your elbows in uh, climate change and climate change risk, uh, are you optimistic about the human community's capacity to do anything effective about this problem? And I don't mean in the response part; I mean in the prevention part. Right? Yeah. You know, I think we'll get there. You know, I think we've all understood over the last you know, 10 years, especially that's as much of a, a psychological and emotional challenge as it is a, a scientific one, we can solve the science. So I think, you know, I think more and more research now is going into the psychological response of our constituents of the general public, or how do we deliver this information in a way that can embrace the, the emotional effect or the emotional aspect of this work. You know, I talked about California before, Although almost, I, I sort of give the example of Ocracoke on the other coast, but then in California, you know, which is, you know, very progressive, relatively speaking, and communities were beginning to write managed retreat, for example, into their um, local hazard plans. And, you know, thinking that this would be embraced by relatively progressive communities. And when this, when those drafts were made public in places like Pacifica in uh, sort of central Northern California around in the Bay Area and Del Mar in San Diego, there was a immediate outrage. And, you know, the people became climate deniers overnight. You know, they were accepting of the science, they're accepting of, of the risk broadly, but the second they were being asked as a community to consider a drastic change that would affect their lives, you know, those things just got shut down immediately. And I mean, the conversations were immediately over and that language was taken out of those draft plans and they're no longer in there. 
And so that gives me pause to think about how we need to think of a, a more strategic way of delivering this information so people you know, can embrace it and can make smart decisions. And, but I think ultimately, like I mentioned, the Okra Coke example, it's, it's a very emotional issue. And if someone came to me and said, you know, you're in, in 30 years, you know, your childhood home isn't going to be livable. So, you know, we're going to have to, uh, we're going to ask you to leave. You know, I, I, I think I would be in denial <laughs> when we get asked those kinds of questions and a very emotional issue, it is difficult to deal with. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic we'll eventually get there, but we have to come up somehow come up with it, get over this emotional hurdle of addressing the issue if, when it's in our backyard and how do we, you know, how do we convey that information? How do, and uh, at the end of the day, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a lot of personal decisions. I don't think the government for the most part is going to have the capacity to, to force people to, to make those sorts of decisions. It's going to be a, I think at the end of the day, it, it's going to be personal decisions and hopefully we can give people access to the information so they can do what's best for them. I could not agree more. Uh, this is not going to be a top-down climate. Adapting to climate change, ladies and gentlemen, if uh, if COVID didn't make this abundantly clear, it ain't going to be a top-down situation. It's going to be a, a bottom-up adaption uh, adaptation strategy. And so, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, Patrick. But uh, I would I would just take a minute here to commend. Uh, the work that you're doing and your colleagues over at USGS, because uh, what you guys are doing is coming up with the the scientific framework, the foundation on which we can understand what's happening. It is also the job, Peter, of people like you and I and our other podcast hosts and other communicators to not dumb this stuff down. I mean, we have to talk. We have to as a as a society. I'm not saying we all have to you start working our muscles out and get stronger in this area. And, uh, you know, there's a lot about American society that, that we are very good at. We are very good at certain things and the understanding our environment, understanding the interconnectedness of our environment, of our watersheds, of sediment, of CO2. This is, this is stuff that we just socially do not have the social infrastructure yet but we are working on it. And I would say, Patrick, because of the work that you and your colleagues are doing, you are you give the communicators and the teachers and the engagement people and and you know and <laughs> uh, brave citizens who are willing to go onto the USGS website and and explore themselves, you give all of these people the opportunity to understand what's happening and then start to start to talk about it and put it into words and put it into social, examples and social frameworks that are understandable and are digestible more broadly. So I just have to say, uh, you know, this is a great, a great first start. It's a great place to be. And Peter, it's what you said before, our federal agencies uh, continually impress us on this podcast. There's a lot of people out there who don't give uh, the research, especially the scientific community uh, that works within the federal government, the, the do uh, that it's in NOAA, USGS Department of Energy come to mind. Uh, you know, on the on the issue of effective responses, um, you know, 
Yeah, it's not going to be imposed, I don't think, from the top down, Tyler. But what we've learned, and and one of the things we do on this show is try to rat around in the universe out there and find initiatives that look responsive to this problem and highlight them. And we had the, as you recall, from uh, Maui County, Hawaii, we had on uh, Tamara uh, Halen, I believe was her name, a county commissioner who developed the managed retreat revolving fund for Miami, uh, for Maui County, uh, and uh, a really interesting local government initiative for retreat. Uh, we've recently read, it's been in Coastal News today, that the uh, the twenty six million dollar appropriation um, uh, for the Quinault Tribe up in Washington State. I'm sure. Uh, Patrick, you're well aware of that decision. Um, so we, there are some things happening. Can you talk a little bit about this initiative? This was announced in the last two weeks. Uh, the Biden administration included funding for retreat of a couple of indigenous communities. Uh, uh, were you involved in any of the analysis of that? Were you uh, Was USGS engaged in the development of the strategy? Can you talk about the Quinault tribe on the, on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State? Yeah, well, uh, my colleague up here, Dr. Eric Grossman, has been working with tribes um, across uh, Puget Sound. And there's a, I think about a dozen of them right now, so it's one of the most active areas. And with the you know very sort of deep and applied science department, so the tribes here are very active in climate adaptation. And in fact, you know the Quinaults are one of them, um, but there's definitely some others as well that are, are basically setting the tone for climate adaptation in Washington State for how to do th- how to do climate adaptation plans right and so um yeah the cosmos work helped support um that decision and then and that funding so that was a, a really exciting when you start to see things really put into motion um especially you know with, as as a doi agency um you know we have uh it's sort of part of our mission is to especially su- su- support um the tribes across the country um, in terms of land management and those issues, I mean, we're and we're the science arm of the land manager for the federal government, so that's something that, that we do a lot of. Um, similarly, um, Dr. Kurt Strelatzi, who's my colleague covering the Pacific Islands and Cosmos-related stuff, you know, he's done a lot of similar work, which has supported, you know, Hawaii just passed a, a law um, for looking at coral reef restoration and putting that into practice. Um, the state of California passed a $4 billion uh, climate resilience spending package based on this work as well. So it's really sort of comforting to see that starting to move the needle and, and really some real policy being implemented um, across these different areas. And, and so that's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, but yeah, it's ongoing effort um, to figure out how we can support these range of stakeholders, you know, whether it's the tribes or the states or you know, the territories out in the further reaches of the Pacific Islands, um, where we do quite a bit of work as well. Um, a lot of which is funded by the Department of Defense because we have a lot of, of resources out there on these small islands, like in the Marshalls, for example, that, you know, are only, are, are barely sustaining today because they're so low lying. And, you know, we have a, a role to support the indigenous peoples out there. Um, but a lot of those sorts of islands by 2050 aren't going to have freshwater drinking supplies. And so there's, there's a host of, of issues that have to be supported and addressed. And, you know, it's not just USGS, it's a whole government approach. And our hope is that as we move forward and probably a lot of the taxpayers would 
agree having a more of a, a more streamlined singular source of information for looking at climate impacts along the coast so that you know noaa and army core it's a little hard yes. to put it in one box this exactly this topic. yeah but, uh, well yeah patrick i you know it's it's fabulous to to get an up close view of what us is usgs is doing at the pacific coastal and marine sciences center and the work that you guys are doing on the storm monitoring the coastal storm monitoring system and the tools and all of this kind of stuff uh it's important for our listeners out there in local government and uh in and folks who are engaged in infrastructure development or investments on the coast uh, go to the usgs find out what the risks are these are the people that put those analyses together and make it available to the public uh, Patrick, how can people access the good work that you do? How do they engage and uh, and connect with USGS and your team? Sure. Um, one way is to go to usgs.gov slash cosmos, and there you'll get a host of uh, information and point you to some of the web tools um, that we've developed. One is with our partners at Point Blue Conservation Science for California. This is called Our Coast, Our Future. So if you go to ourcoastourfuture.org, um, you can find this information for flood and, and other hazard risks across California related to sea level rise. Um, then also the HERA tool, so H-E-R-A, Hazard Exposure Reporting Analytics, is the tool that translates all of the, the hazard zones into uh, dollars and lives. And that's another valuable source of information for looking at these different uh, diff levels of risk in your community. So for California, and now this will be soon available uh, for the Southeast um, United States, as well as parts of Puget Sound and, and shortly in the Pacific Islands and Alaska as well. Keep working. You know, we need it. We need to get that. We need to understand it to do something good about it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Patrick Bernard is a research geologist with the United States Geological Survey, joining us from Seattle, Washington. He is out of the Pacific and Coastal Marine Sciences Center in Santa Cruz, California. Uh, Patrick, thank you very much for taking time out to talk to the folks on uh, American Trailline Podcast. We sure appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Tyler. Jesus said